to incorporate it. Not right away, but uh, eventually. Okay, so it's a little, uh, actually it makes it a little easier on me too, because I don't have to think about uh, topics to talk about. Anyway, I want to just finish up a little bit about uh, laboratory-grown meat, because this is going to be an important issue. It's not that important right now, because unless you have $1,000 for a hamburger, you're not going to be able to get one. Is that how much it costs? Uh, well, it's not available, but if you'd have to pay for it, that's what it would cost. Wow. Uh, but let me just explain the technology, just in a very simple way, so you know what's going on. Uh, you know, you can take any cell. You can take a human cell, an animal cell, from a live animal or person, and put it in a petri dish. If you get nutrition, it's able to split, and it's called culture. You can culture cells. So uh, here is what they want to do. They want to take a cell, or they've done this. They take a single cell, very tiny, a single cell from a live animal. And uh, through culturing it, they can produce you know, thousands, millions, tens of millions of cells. And eventually, you get fibers, muscle fibers. And you keep on doing that over and over and over again. And the muscle fibers, a lot of muscle fibers, turn into meat. So eventually, you're going to get meat. Chemically, it's exactly the same as meat, because it, it comes from the cell of a live animal. Now, it has to come from a live animal, because once the, once the animal is dead, the cells cannot be cultured. They, they, don't, they can't uh, increase. So the question becomes, uh, just as, you can call this, you can call this artificial meat, you can call it laboratory meat, uh, you can call it stem cell meat, whatever you want to call it, uh, but it's meat that is produced in a laboratory. Uh, and the question becomes, a lot of questions, quite, number one, is it kosher at all? That's a major question. Uh, and number two, if it is kosher, is it fleshic? So you can't have it with milk? Or would it literally be pariv? And you'd be even allowed to have it with milk? That's, but these are two separate questions. The, the most important question is, is it kosher? We'll just talk about what the problem would be. And the second issue would be, uh, is it fleshic? Yeah. Well, no, because uh, you're not culturing the whole cow. You're, you're culturing muscle. You're taking a muscle cell. Can you regrow human? Like huh? <laughs> well, you can culture human cells. Well, that's called cloning, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually uh, you might I'm be able to. Alive. No, no, I understand that. Uh, but you're not, you're not cloning the animal. You're not cloning the skin. You're not cloning the hooks. You're cloning muscle fibers. You're cloning. So you're producing muscle fibers. That's all you're going to get. So if you have uh, millions and millions of muscle fibers, you have a hamburger. Why don't we do that with humans who lose a limb? Why don't we keep their bone? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, but we don't do that. Uh, we do do that. Uh, we keep their bone and we regrow everything else? Well, there are possibilities. I mean, you know, the, the technology is not perfected yet, but uh, yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely, that's going to be something that can be done. Yeah, absolutely. And eyeballs? Uh, yeah, yeah, but, but, but you have to understand that um, even if you produce all those things, you've got to connect it with nerves. It's a very complicated thing. Uh, you know, you can create an eye in a test tube, but then you have to connect it to the optic nerves and everything else. That's not a simple thing. Okay, so question one is the culture problem. Well, let's assume that you know, we take it from culture, we'll take it from, take it from a, you know, I mean, it'll be a cow or a sheep or whatever it would be. But here's the problem. Obviously, the cow or the sheep is not just Right? So, now what's the halakha generally? They have a cow and cut off part of the cow. Uh, even if I salt it, I remove all the blood and everything else. I'm not allowed to eat a limb that was severed from an animal when it was alive 
that is an Isra Doraisa. That is called Aver Minhachai. Aver Minhachai means it is prohibited to eat limbs or meat or flesh of an animal while it was still alive. Now, not only is it other Jews, see, for Jews, it's obviously going to be usher because it wasn't shechted. But you have to understand, this goes beyond the fact that it was shechted. Because even a non-Jew who's allowed to eat meat that was shechted, a non-Jew cannot eat meat that was severed from a lion. And Avram and Achai is one of the seven Ochadlas that are even prohibited to eat. So the question for is, if indeed we took cells from animals that were alive and not shechted, which you have to do, otherwise you can't culture them, don't you have a simple question that it's trafe because it's aver nachai? Well, that's a very strong argument, indeed. But the counter-argument is this. The cells that are taken are microscopic. This is a concept in halacha. Does halacha take into account things that are not visual? For example, I know that everybody today is very concerned about insects that you find in leafy vegetables. Sometimes people go a little crazy over it. I think they're stricter than they have to be, but you know, you do have to look at lettuce and broccoli and cabbage, and some say things like Brussels sprouts, you can't eat at all uh, because they're impossible to check. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not giving you a psaac in that, but there are different views on all of these things. And that's why we have special companies like Bodeg that have pre-checked this and pre-checked that, and some people rely, some people don't. But here's the problem. The problem is that every time you breathe, there are going to be, you know, invisible, <laughs> I don't want to get you disgusted or anything, uh, grossed out, but there's invisible insects that, that go into your mouth and, and uh, all sorts of things. And certainly in any food that you eat, there are going to be all sorts of stuff. If you looked at your bread under a microscope, uh, you would never eat it. You would never eat anything again. Uh, that might be a way to uh, get on a diet, put all your food under a microscope. Uh, you will not be able to eat it. So the question is, then how can I eat anything? It has insects in it or bugs in it. And the general rule is, anything that you cannot see with the naked eye is not forbidden under the law of the Torah because the Torah deals with visual phenomena and things that are sub-visual are considered to be halakhically non-existent, even though they're there, even though you know they're there. The, the laws of the Torah do not apply to things that cannot be seen with the naked eye. Now, if you can see on a piece of lettuce a black spot, but you cannot tell if it's an insect or not, that's called visual because you can see it. So you don't have to hold it in the light? Huh? You don't have to hold no, it in the light? Well, you have to, you need to, well, let me put it this way. You, you have to hold it in the light if you see there's a spot. If you don't say anything, you just pick up your lens and check. Uh, it, yeah, it could be that you don't have to. In other words, it's not so it's not so obvious. Many people do, but it's not so simple that you have to. Now, some would say that light is, uh, if you can see it with your naked eye under light, that's called naked eye. That's not called microscope. In other words, putting it under a light is not the same as putting it under a microscope, which is artificial. Let me give you another example of subvisual phenomena. I'll give you two examples. Nothing to do with kashras. Uh, tefillin, right? uh, if you're familiar with tefillin, you've seen uh, men put on tefillin. So tefillin are boxes, right? Boxes that contain parchments of Shema in them. We read them in, uh, we read them in last week's Torah reading. Now the boxes of tefillin have to be square. They have to be at right angles. 
Now, uh, if, for example, there's a dent in it or, or it's a little pushed out, so it's not at a, an exact right angle, it's puzzle. It can be fixed usually. Uh, you know, a skilled bottom maker can readjust the leather boxes. But we know that in geometry, there's a tool by which you could measure a right angle. The halacha says, however, it looks if an average person looking at it, looks like it's square, even, even if it's maybe only 89 and a half degrees or 90, 90 and a half degrees. And if you had a tool, a professional measurement tool, you could see that it was off, that's good enough. Because halacha says the judgment is made based on what you see, not based on some type of professional measuring device that you have to have. Another interesting example is that. Well, yeah, yeah, but we have to, you know, the definition of what does it mean you can't see, but yes, as a general idea, I love this idea. You are pregnant, and they tell your kid you have a certain sickness. Your, your kid is what? Didn't hear you. They have a certain sickness or something. Can you prepare for that, or you can't? No, no, no. I mean, what I'm, all, all I'm saying is, if you can't see it, it's not considered to be forbidden. But certainly, whatever it is, you certainly should take that into account. By all means, uh, if you're aware of a sickness that can be corrected before the child is born in utero surgery, and there is such a thing, by all means, you should. I'm not about. Uh, I'm not giving you a global rule. I'm telling you that prohibitions don't take effect. Do not take effect. Isurim do not take effect on subvisual phenomena. Is comics the exception to that? No, no. Uh, now, now again, let me, let me point out the following point. If you have one crumb of chametz that gets mixed into you know, 10 million yeah. non-chametz, see, that's called a visual phenomenon because before it got mixed in, it was a visible crumb. So the fact that you can't see it now, that, that's not going to give you a hedger. So that's going to be us, sir. But, like but if you had chametz that was literally invisible, it was so small that your eye couldn't see it, yeah, even chametz would be okay, would be much Okay, see, this is why it's tricky. Because one crumb mixed in a million is not visible anymore, but it was visible before it went in, so it's chametz, and that's why it so remains. Is Huh? That's correct. That, that's actually correct. Uh, people overdo pesach cleaning. That's a well-known. Really? That's a well-known idea. People. Uh, I mean, I don't want to discourage because there is a big mitzvah to, to get rid of every possible chametz. But pesach cleaning is not spring cleaning. It doesn't have to be. Uh, you go through all of your uh, closets and uh, whatever it is. I mean, you have to go through. You're looking for chametz, and you're looking for visible chametz. You're not looking for dirt, and you're not looking for dust, and you're not looking for other other things. So, for example, there's not that much reason to uh, clean the ceiling. Right. Some people actually clean the ceiling for Pesach. Or like even Whatever. the couch pillows probably So, so it really depends. It, dep- it depends if you have, it depends if you have young yeah. chil- children. If you, yeah, no, no, no. If, if you have little kids in the house, so, you, you do yeah. have to look at it because, uh, you know, they put a Cheerio up, up everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to wash it, put it in the washing machine or, or put it in the bathtub. Yeah, it's, it's worthwhile to do that. But if you're an adult and you're just living, you know, your kids are married already, whatever it is, and the grandchildren uh, weren't around, let's say this year, COVID, unfortunately, so there's not that much uh, cleaning you really have to do for, uh, for Pesach. Unless you married a, a slob of a husband, whatever it is, but okay, hopefully uh, you can educate him. Okay, now, 
Let me give you another example of subvisual that's very interesting. Lice. The Gemara makes a claim about lice that is very amazing and it's against science. You know, we know that one of the malachos of Shabbos is you're not allowed to kill an animal, right? You can't kill an animal. That's called taking a soul, taking a neshama. That's a malacha. That's why you can't shecht, you can't kill. Uh, you can't even kill, you can't kill an insect on Shabbos unless it's, you know, pikuach nefesh, unless it's like a dangerous thing. But the Gemara says you're allowed to kill lice on Shabbos. Lice? Lice. Now, why is that? Listen to this reason. Because the prohibition of killing are only things that produce sexually by the union of a male and a female. And lice are not created by sexual reproduction. Lice are created by spontaneous generation. Now, what is spontaneous generation? This was a very common belief until around 200 years ago in which when you have rot, rotting meat, rotting food, somehow the flies or the insects get created from rotten food. And therefore, Chazal said that lice are created from the rotting of food. They are not created by sexual reproduction. That's really cool. Huh? Which is actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, the problem is, yeah, yeah. But you'll see in a moment. So, so, so the issue, therefore, is Chazal say you're allowed to kill lice. Now, the big problem is that, uh, I think it was Louis Pasteur, the, you know, the one who invented pasteurization. It's named after him. Uh, Pasteur discovered or uncovered or proved uh, a long time ago that although in the ancient world there was a belief in spontaneous generation, in fact, there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. Even in rotting food, you have you know union. You have you know, the insects get together and they, Mr. and Mrs. Laos, produce uh, their children. So the question becomes, well, wait a second. So that means the halacha was based on a false scientific reason. And if we know that the science has changed, does that mean the halacha is going to change too? And how do you understand this? So one of the explanations is given is this. Our sages certainly knew that there was no such thing as spontaneous generation. They knew that on a very small level, there was a, a union of a masculine and a feminine louse. But the halacha is based not on the reality. The halacha is based on the reality that you can see with your naked eye. And with your naked eye, I see spontaneous generation. I don't see like any type of union. And therefore, this is even a kula in the laws of Shabbos. We allow something in the laws of Shabbos that would generally be prohibited based on the idea that halacha does not look at the subvisual; it only looks at the visual. And therefore, even though on a subvisual level the lice are mating, zachor unikeva, but in terms of visual, it looks like spontaneous generation. And that's going to go. Now, Lamaisa, do not take this as a final halacha. There are opinions that say you're not allowed to kill the last because we know that it comes from Zachar and Akeva today and the halacha changes. But so there is a big argument over that particular case about uh, the status of killing lice. Okay, so all of this was just to show you that halacha does not pay attention to things that cannot be seen by the naked eye. Therefore, let's go back to the laboratory meat. Since the cell that is taken from the animal 
is sub-visual. So it's not considered to be halachically in existence. It then gives rise to muscle fibers. Now those muscle fibers are not connected to the animal. Right? They were generated in the test tube. They come from the cell that was taken from the animal. But if that cell is sub-visual, it's not considered in existence, that would be the heter of the laboratory meat. You see, it's based on these sub-visual phenomena. Uh, now, the alternative argument, there's another argument that even if the cell is visible, but since the muscle fibers that are generated are millions and millions and millions of times more than the original cell, we have a principle called nullification. Now, what's the in Hebrew? That's called beetle. Right? Beetle is something I think you're familiar with. Let's imagine you're cooking a meat soup, a fleshic soup, on the stove, and somebody is carrying a cup of coffee and trips, and there's milk in it or whatever, and some of the milky coffee goes into the soup. So that's a real problem, right? The soup is meat. The be milk. So some milk fell into the soup. So what is the halacha? I think you know this. And that is, if the volume of the meat soup is 60 or more times the amount of milk that fell into the soup, the soup remains flaschic and you can eat the soup. Okay, so you'd have to measure it. Uh, okay, that's called batal v'shishim. That's exactly right. Uh, if, on the other hand, so much milk fell in that you don't have 60 times the meat, then it's all treif, then everything has to be thrown away because it's meat and milk, okay? This is even true for, not just for meat and milk, this is even true for, for treif, bacon, right? Uh, somebody walked by with, uh, with a pork, uh, pork sandwich and some pork fell into the fleshic soup. I would also apply the rule of batel b'shishim. The logic of shishim is that Chazal assume that when you have 60 or more times uh, the prohibition that fell in, you can no longer taste the prohibition, and therefore you can't taste it, it's like non-existent. So here the argument is this, the cell, I mean the muscle fibers that are generated are not only 60 times the cell, they are millions of times of the cell. So consequently, the same principle that says the milk can be nullified in the meat soup, or the pork can be nullified in the meat dish, would also apply to this. So there are two different reasonings. These are two different reasonings to matir the laboratory-grown meat. Uh, one reason would be that it is sub-visual. This visual component is considered halakhically non-existent. The other is the concept of beetle b'shishim carried to a millionth degree, because it's not just shishim, it's, it's not just 60 times the cell, it's millions of times. Of the, of the cell. However, I hope you, you, you understand that both of these reasons are making a certain assumption that doesn't follow. They're making the assumption that the later muscle fibers that are generated are not in themselves meat because, because if they themselves are meat, then who cares if the original cell was subvisual or who cares if the original cell is nullified by a million muscle fibers? It itself is meat. 
Right? It itself is meat. So you're not saying only the cell is meat. Everything is meat. So here, both of the readings are assuming a third idea. That is, the muscle fibers are not considered meat, even if chemically they're meat, because they did not grow on an animal. Meaning, in order to be meat, it has to be cells that were part of an animal's body. And since these cells are not part of an animal's body, they are not halachically meat. The only thing that is meat is the original cell that was removed. And on that, we have the heter of either subvisual or batel bishishim. Now, those who aser, those who forbid, again, like everything else in machlokes, they say, forget it. The muscle fibers are meat. They're meat. In other words, uh, who cares about the original thing? They themselves are meat. Now, so it's a machlokas, meaning to say you have two opinions. Opinion number one says it's kosher. Opinion number two says it's not kosher. Now, if you follow opinion number one, are you allowed to eat it with milk or cheese? Can you actually have a real milk or cheese? Well, logically, the answer should be yes, because, because if you're looking at the logic that the muscle fibers themselves are not and the original cell is either subvisual or nullified, that would actually mean that something could have meat, but halakhically is not, and we'd allow it to have it with a cheeseburger, except for the fact that we have another one, which is called Marisayan. I remember Marisayan. Marisayan is uh, it always pops up. Marisayan means appearances that you're not supposed to do something that people who see you do it, uh, it looks like you're doing an Aveira. Now, when you're eating soy burgers, soy burgers are different enough from hamburgers that people don't think uh, you're eating meat, or they know that it's different. But when you're eating meat, something that's mamash, the same as a hamburger, but it came from where you generated meat, so that would look like you're eating milchik, so that you shouldn't do. Now it could be, I have to admit, at the point in time in which laboratory-grown meat is going to be very, very, very common, it might be it'll get reclassified like soy, right? Remember, when soy burgers started, there also was a marasayan. People said, oh, you can't have smerdis because it looks too much like meat. It came coming. People know you have those things, so it could be the laboratory maybe the same thing. But right now, if you get a burger, you should not have it with Again, they say that means they trafe, so um, we don't even have a clear psak on it, on it uh, yet. Okay, so that's what you need to know basically about uh, laboratory meat, and I hope you see what the shaila is. Uh, the shaila basically is, if the muscle fibers are meat, then they would be avermenachai. It's taken from a live animal; it would not be allowed. Uh, but the matirim say, either the original cell is uh, subvisual or the original cell is nullified in millions and millions of muscle fibers, and we don't treat the muscle fibers themselves as meat because they did not grow on the body of, of an animal, of an animal itself. Okay, uh, now let me mention another thing which is a little bizarre, and maybe it's not even that important for me to mention it, but you might hear about it in the newspaper, so I do want to, want to mention this a little bit. And this is kind of a crazy idea, that a rabbi in Australia is working on. And this is called Ben Pakua meat, uh, BP meat. I mean, uh, you know, so far it hasn't really taken off the ground, but he has big plans for it. Let me explain what a Ben Pakua is. A Ben Pakua 
is an interesting halachic idea. That is, let's say you shecht a cow, and the cow is pregnant. The cow happens to be carrying a calf inside. So the calf that's inside of a slaughtered cow is called a ben pakua. And the amazing halacha of ben pakua is a ben pakua does not have to be shechted. If, you, if I decide later I want to eat this calf, I can just shoot it or whatever it is. I don't need to shecht it because the halacha is the shechting of the mother counted as a shechting of this kid even though the kid's alive and it's running around and everything else. Right? This is the yesod of Ben Pakua is, does not need shechita because it, it effectively was halakhically considered shechted with the mother's shechita. Now, this can work even intergenerationally. You could create, theoretically, a flock or flocks of thousands of animals that don't have to be shechted. So, for example, if Ben Pakua 1 mates with Bas Pakua 2 and they have offspring, the offspring don't have to be shechted. So, if you, as long as both parents are Ben Pakuas, the, you need both of them to be Ben Pakuas, the immunity, so to speak, passes on to the flock. So, theoretically, you could have millions of animals if you do it long enough that don't have to be shechted. Now, you might say, okay, I mean, why is that? What's, what's so great about that? So you don't have to shech them. I mean, you, you have to kill them because you, you can't eat them when they're alive. That's anyway, right? So shechita is a better way to kill than any other way anyway. Right? So, so what is the big myla you're gaining by having a million animals that don't have to be shechted? So here is where the rabbi has kind of a crazy idea. The rabbi's argument is, and he has some sources for it, that a ben pakua not only is immune from shechita, but a ben pakua is not halachically meat. It's not halachically meat. It's not Abraham and Chaim, it's not meat. And therefore, his position is, a ben pakua can halachically be eaten with milk and cheese. Therefore, his argument was, if he creates herds, of Ben Pakua uh, animals. This would allow for an absolutely kosher uh, cheeseburger because Ben Pakuas are not fleshic. Now, although he does have some proofs, I don't want to go into all of them, I, I, the bottom line is that most rabbis have said this is an awful idea and he's making a big mistake. The only thing a Ben Pakua has is it is immune from a shechita need because the shechita of the mother was a valid shechita for the ben pakua, and that transfers to the next generation. But it is meat, so it's not Abram and Achai, that's correct, it wouldn't be because it's considered shechlet, so you could cut off a leg, etc. It's not Abram and Achai, but it is meat, and if it is meat, for sure, it's going to be usher to eat it with milk and cheese. So this rabbi's dream that he would have flocks and flocks of ben pakuas uh, that could be eaten with milchiks. Most poskims say that is an incorrect halachic analysis. They also think it's a tremendously bad idea because that's certainly marisayan, where you have flocks and flocks of cows that uh, 
you know, that look is that look the same. By the way, I, I believe in the United States, it's even forbidden to um, to sell ben pakuas, meaning to say, if you shecht a, whatever, if you shecht or kill a cow, and there's a fetus in the cow that can only be ground up for animal food, dog food, it cannot be served for humans. I don't know why exactly, what the health risk is, but uh, ben pakuas cannot be served for human consumption in the United States. I guess in Australia, presumably it would be much. Right. So again, I, this is not uh, this is not very important. I'm mentioning it because there are some newspaper stories about it. So if you hear about Ben Pakua meat, you will at least know uh, what uh, they are talking, talking about. Okay, so now uh, let me go on to a new topic, uh, this, which is related, really. Um, this week is 15th of Shvat, Tu B'Shvat. And uh, Tu B'Shvat uh, is mentioned in the Mishnah and in the Gemara, but it's a very, very narrow concept, meaning Tu B'Shvat is not a big holiday uh, in the Gemara. Uh, at all, uh, the specific idea of Tu B'Shvat is a law in the tithing of fruit. We know that in Eretz Yisrael, uh, you have to separate Truma, which in the time of the temple was given to a Kohen. Today we just separate it, we don't give it to Kohanim because everybody is Tameh. And then you separate Maser, different tithings that you would give to the Levi. Right? These are gifts that you separate from produce that is grown in the land of Israel. But one of the most important rules about tithing is that every year has its own tithing. You cannot tithe from the produce of one year onto the produce of another year. So for example, let's take apples. Uh, right? Let's assume that I have um, 10 bushels of apples from this year and 10 bushels of apples from last year. So I have 20 bushels of apples. So my tithing of 10%, let's say the Levy's tithing, would be two apples. But I have to give one apple from this year and one apple from last year. I cannot just give two apples of this year to cover last year, because every year's tithings must come from the produce of that year. This is called chadash and yashan. You cannot give from old year on new year, you cannot give from new year on old year. You have to give chadash on chadash. You must give yashan on yashan. So because of this, we obviously have a question, what is called old year, what is called new year? So generally speaking, for grain and for vegetables, a year begins on Rosh Hashanah. So vegetables that were harvested before Rosh Hashanah cannot be given as tithes for vegetables that were harvested after Rosh Hashanah. Very simple, because one is an old year, one is a new year, the tithing has to be separated. But for trees, we actually have a different Rosh Hashanah. The Rosh Hashanah for trees, halakhically, for tithing purposes, is not the first of Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah, but it is the 15th of Shvat. And that is the meaning. I know it doesn't sound that inspiring. I know in Hasidic Svarim, Kabbalah Svarim, Rosh Hashanah Lilanot is given a very, very deep spiritual message. I'll allude to it. But in the Gemara, it's a very prosaic technical idea. It is the new year of trees in terms of defining what is old produce and what is new produce for purposes of tithing. And the way this means is the following. By trees, we don't look at when you harvested the apple. We look at when the tree blossomed. 
right? When a fruit tree first produces a blossom, and after the blossom drops, there's a bud, right? There's a bud that follows the blossom. That's called chanata. So, if a tree blossoms and budded before Tu Bishvat, it's the old year. And if it blossomed and budded after Tu Bishvat, it's the new year. And the tithings of the apples, even if it's from the same tree, and even if you harvested the apples at the same time, but if something budded before Tu Bishvat, it's the old year uh, versus the new year. That is the technical halachic meaning of Rosh Hashanah Le'ilanot. And the reason why it is significant uh, botanically uh, is that the sap that will produce the fruits, right? What you have is you have a root system and there's sap. And when the sap goes up the tree and then moves into the branches, it produces the buds and the fruit, right? The sap. Uh, the sap completes its rising around Tu Bishvat, at least in Eretz Yisrael. So that's when the sap rises, and that's the Rosh Hashanah Lilana. Now, so in the Gemara, all I can say is Tu Bishvat is not a big deal, meaning it's a very technical rule for the determination of Truma and Maser, which is a very important rule, but it's a halachic rule. There's no deep philosophical meaning that is given to Tu Bishvat. Yeah. If you were to buy like a two-year-old sapling, and then plant it. Do you count three years from when you plant it or from like... Okay, so you're talking... Okay, so, so let me just clarify something. You're talking about a different halakha, which is not the halakha I'm talking about. I'm talking about tithing. Now, you're talking about a different halakha, which is very, very important. That is another rule that the first three years you planted a tree, you're not allowed to eat the fruit at all. The fruit is totally usher. There's no tithings. The fruit has to be thrown away. So your question, which is a very good question, is how does that work when you replant a tree? Uh, do you count the two years it already grew and you only have one more year? Or let's say it already was three years old and you're okay? Or does everything start again? Again, that's not tithing. That's called orla. That's a different law. And by the way, that even applies in outside of Israel. That's the one. So that's a tricky question. Uh, it really depends on how much dirt was uprooted with the tree, meaning like this. If you totally uprooted a sapling and you replanted it, the clock starts again. You're back to zero. If, however, when it was uprooted, it was put in a pot and there was enough dirt to sustain it and it was never without uh, that dirt, then you can uh, continue the count from where you left off. So it really depends on... Uh, how, how total was the uprooting? Okay, so you have to, you have to figure that out. It's not, not, it's not always so easy to find that out, but sometimes you start from scratch, which is, you know, that could be very difficult, and sometimes you just finish off the amount that's left. Okay, but that's Orla. Uh, tu Bishvat is not gonna be that relevant for Orla. Uh, the Orla year changes in Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, which means it doesn't have to be a full 36 months. Uh, if you, for example, only had like one month before Rosh Hashanah, that counts for year one, and then you have two more years. See? Okay. Alrighty. Now, so what then happened was this. If you go to the, uh, the Mekubalim in Tzfat, the great, great Mekubalim, the great Kabbalists of Tzfat, this is the Arizal, Rav Moshe Cordovero, 
This is already in the 1500s. So then they saw a very deep spiritual significance in Tu B'Shvat, and in many, uh, in Hasidus, uh, this got carried further as well. And they point out to the fact, and again, I'm sure your, your other teachers will talk about this, I'm not going to talk about it a lot, but just to mention a little bit, uh, they talk about the fact that the Torah compares a human being to a tree. Right, the Torah says, do not destroy fruit trees, because man is like a tree. And uh, the explanation is, we are like an upside down tree. A physical tree has its roots in the earth, and it grows towards the heaven. We have our roots in the heaven, in Hashem, and we grow towards the earth. But we are like a tree, and therefore it was said that when Tu B'Shvat is a Rosh Hashanah for trees, there's also a certain element of a Rosh Hashanah that pertains to us, that Hashem makes available new potentials on Tu B'Shvat that one can have a sense of renewal, a sense of growth. On Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei, Hashem gave us gifts. But it says that we don't have access to those gifts till after Tu B'Shvat. So Tu B'Shvat, the Otsaros, the heavenly treasures in Shemayim are open and we can take it. And as a result, the Mekubalim created a, I don't know if you're gonna have this, a Tu B'Shvat Seder. Do you have, do you do, you do that here? I don't know. Uh, four That's cups. Of, yeah, well, yeah. They, they should, uh, who knows? But uh, they have four cups of wine and different fruits, etc. And each fruit uh, has passages from the Torah and from the Gemara and from the Zohar about the significance of all of these fruits and uh, and the like. There is a long form and a short form. Some eat twelve types of fruits. Others eat thirty types of fruits. Three O. And again, there's Kabbalistic reasoning for all of them. But one of the things that Tu B'Shvat uh, calls to mind, uh, although not directly, but I guess indirectly, and this is even and for people who are not religious at all, is it makes us think about our relationship to the environment. So that's actually the halachic topic I want to talk about. And that is, uh, you know, now we have uh, a new president in the United States who believes in climate change and global warming and, you know, is going to reverse everything that bad Trump did, not really, but whatever uh, whatever it is. So the question is, what does Judaism say about environmentalism and, 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 and the like? And so I just want to go over a few halachos with you. And uh, the basic idea is that uh, we do have a responsibility towards the environment. That doesn't mean you have to buy hook, line, and sinker every single claim that is made about every single thing. Obviously, you can be an independent person on this, in this judgment. But as a general rule, one has to uh, have respect for the environment that HaKadosh Baruch created. So I'm going to mention, really, a laundry list, almost, of different halachic areas where we see a sensitivity to the environment that is around us. Uh, the first and the foremost uh, is Baal Tashchis. Uh, this is a negative commandment in the Torah. The Torah says, this is in the book of Devorim, when you wage war against a city, you're not allowed, in Eretz Israel, you're not allowed to destroy fruit trees. And uh, this is the Pasuk that says, because is the fruit tree an enemy and that you have to destroy it? And Chazal understands that this is not limited to fruit trees and it's not limited to time of war. But anything that has a usable purpose, uh, 
one is not supposed to destroy. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us resources to use, and one should not uh, stop destroy things for no reason at all. If you just rip up things, waste things. So this would support the idea of reusing things, this would support recycling, uh, this would support not wasting various resources, because one has to be conscious that everything that Hashem gave me in this world to use is a gift, and gifts are not supposed to be squandered. Right? That's baltashchus. Again, it's a halacha to be aware, aware of. In fact, uh, wasting food is a tremendous problem, uh, particularly, uh, okay, okay I mean, this year, obviously, everything is messed up with, with COVID, but uh, after uh, any simcha, after a bar mitzvah, after a wedding, uh, you, you, if you just see the tons and tons and tons of food, that is perfectly good food, very good food, and, you know, it goes to waste. Uh, I know in the United States, there were many, many laws you couldn't even give it to homeless shelters because, you know, contamination, there were various fears. Uh, I don't know, but, but there are, I don't know, I think in Israel, I think obviously they're a little more lenient. Uh, but there ought to be some way to be able, if it's perfectly good food, you want to be sure that it's safe, to be able to distribute it uh, to people who, who need it. So that's one area of halacha. That's There's another area of halacha, which is a whole chapter of the Gemara. This, this is the second chapter of Baba Basra. And this is called Hilchos Shechenim, the laws of neighbors. And the area that this deals with is, what can I do on my property if it would interfere with you? Meaning the halacha is very, very, there are many, many complicated halachas that, you know, am I allowed to jackhammer three o'clock in the morning? Am I allowed to pollute whatever it would be? There is a concept of ownership of property is not absolute. Owning land does not mean I can do whatever I want. Owning of my land has to be in a way that does not interfere with my neighbors. So in the second chapter of Baba Basra, we have all sorts of rules about noise, not making noise. We have rules about pollution, whether it's air, water, pollution, because even if what you're doing is on your property, you are chayav to use your property in a way that does not interfere with somebody else. Now, these are difficulties, right? These are going to be difficulties, uh, even increasing pedestrian traffic. So there are zoning rules. So, for example, the halacha has a rule that in a residential area, I'm not supposed to open a store if that's going to cause a lot of traffic to come in and disturb people in a neighborhood. Now, there are exceptions. The halacha actually is you're allowed to open a yeshiva or a school, even in a residential neighborhood, because that's increasing the learning of Torah, and that's a blessing for the neighborhood rather than a curse. But you can understand it. I mean, if you see around here, you can see. I mean, you, you hear it all the time, the noise that's being made by construction. Okay, uh, people agree to it, whatever it would be. Uh, but there are many, many halachas regarding noise pollution, water pollution, air pollution, uh, traffic pollution, bringing in extra people. All of these are based on the idea that you have a responsibility not to make the environment worse and interfere with other people's right to live in their environment. 
Now, I want to point out philosophically, this is actually what is called in the environmental movement low environmentalism rather than higher environmentalism. By that I mean to say, we're not like worshiping the earth, like the earth is holy or the sky is holy or the water is holy, like the Indians or the Native Americans had this whole philosophy that you can't you know, bespoil the earth because the earth has a certain type of holiness to it. We don't say that. This set of halachas is not based on the holiness of the earth or the sky or the water. It is based on your responsibility towards your fellow human being. So here, for example, you see in Eretz Yisrael that unfortunately people are not conscientious about littering. People litter a lot. People just throw things. So um, I saw in a park once, in a religious neighborhood, very religious neighborhood, that a family was having a picnic dinner, they were, or a picnic lunch. They were having lunch on Shabbos afternoon uh, in the park on the, in the picnic tables. And then at the end of their meal, they benched and they left, and they left all their garbage on the table. And I mean, I, I didn't intervene. I mean, I, I wouldn't ask them why, but, but apparently somebody said, why don't you take away your garbage? And they said, well, we can't because garbage is muktzah on Shabbos. You're not allowed to move garbage. It's muktzah because it's not usable. Well, first of all, that, that's very questionable. But, but let's assume they were very strict in the laws of muktzah and they would not move muktzah, they would not move garbage on Shabbos. If you know ahead of time that you're not going to take away your garbage on Shabbos, then you don't eat there on Shabbos. I mean, that seems very, very simple. What type of hedger do you have to go into a public place, mess it up, knowing ahead of time that you're not going to clean it, and then pull out the halacha to give you a reason why, sorry, I'd love to do it, I'd love to clean it, but the halacha says I'm not allowed to clean it. So eat in your house and let your house be messy. I think in their house they would probably find some hedger to move the garbage, whatever it would be. Okay, so that's the secondary. And again, this is not discussed in the Torah so much. This is in the second parak of Bava Basra, and this is called Hilchos Shechenim, the obligation of neighbors towards each other, or the other term that is used for the same thing is Harchakas Nezikin. You are obligated to distance damage to another person in using your property. Okay. Now, there's a third halacha that's very, very interesting that you wouldn't think has any relevance to environment. And that is, at the end of the book of Bamidbar, the tribe of Levi, remember the Levium were not given a separate portion of land in Eretz Yisrael. But instead of a separate, discrete portion of land, they were given 48 cities throughout Eretz Yisrael in which in every tribe, tribe, there were some Levite cities. And these were their cities. These are called Are Levium. They are also cities of refuge, by the way, for people who kill accidentally. All of the 48 cities are called Are Mikla. In fact, the Rebbe has a beautiful uh, sicha about this because he points out that the Torah generally does not have a prison system. Right? We don't have prison. Prison is not one of the punishments in the Torah. But the closest thing we have to a prison is an Ir Miklat, which is not really a prison cell. You're confined to a city, but you know you are limited. You can't leave the city 
until the Kohen Gadol dies. Now, one of the biggest problems in prisons is you're taking a kid who commits his first crime at 18, and you're throwing him in an environment of hardened criminals. What are the influences you're putting into him? People who have murdered, people who have raped, people who have committed crimes. So you're taking a guy and you're putting him bedafka, or a woman for that matter, and you're putting them in an environment that's going to corrupt them more and more and more and make them worse and worse and worse. And that is why it's no accident that the recidivism rate, that means the return rate, the repeat rate, once you've been in jail once, the likelihood you're going to, be, going to, going to go back again is like 70 or 80%. You're going to go back again and again and again. Now, by contrast, look at where we put the guy who is careless and thoughtless and kills people because he wasn't looking both ways. We put him in a Levite city. Now, who are the Levian? The Levian are the leaders of Am Yisrael. They are the righteous people. They are the tzaddikim. Meaning, if somebody did something bad, you don't put him in an environment with more bad people. You put him in an environment where he's likely to learn and grow and be inspired. And therefore, the Rebbe said that the ideal type of prison environment would be an environment that exposes a person to good and positive influences and role models. Now, obviously, if somebody is a dangerous mass murderer, you can't simply let them loose in the community. That, that's true. But for a lot of crimes, which are nonviolent crimes, you know, you don't have to lock somebody up. There are ways that you can have them in a community and try to create positive, good influences on the person. And that, you know, one of Chabad's programs, a very, uh, very good program, is the Aleph program, which actually creates uh, programs in prisons uh, to work with Jewish prisoners and to help them find meaning in their lives, even under those very, very difficult situations. Okay, um, but, okay but, but, but I'm bringing this up because in those 48 cities, there's an interesting halacha that around the cities, there has to be a migrash. A migrash means parkland of 2,000, a radius of 2,000 amos. That's like a kilometer. So, so imagine this is a square kilometer of parkland around these cities. And it must remain dedicated parkland. You're not allowed to expand the city. Like you can't build the city into the parkland. And you can't even use the parkland for fields. The fields are outside of the parkland. It must be parklands with trees, resting, recreation. Now, what is the urban planning aspect of this? The urban planning aspect of this is that the R.A. Levium are kind of the ideal type of city. And you keep the city small. You don't have urban sprawl. Meaning to say, if the Levium grow in population, you have to create another city. You don't expand the city outward. You simply have to find the ability to go to another city. And Rev Hirsch writes that this is the ideal urban environment where instead of having huge, huge cities that grow bigger and bigger and bigger in which people don't know each other and you have skyscrapers going all the way up, whatever it is, you have smaller communities where people get to know each other. So in a sense, the city of the Levian is the ideal small community where people do get uh, to know each other. 
And uh, that is why you need the Midrash, both because of the parkland and because it prevents a city from growing too big. That's always a problem. By the way, this is a big problem with many, many things. Schools often grow too big. Uh, a yeshiva might start off very small, very intimate. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, all the teachers are connected to the students. And then when it gets successful, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And when it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the very things that made it such a good school are not going to be there anymore. You become a victim of your own success. Baruch Hashem, I think my note uh, is going to remain relatively small. So uh, you yeah. still have... Uh-huh. I think so. <laughs> so you still have uh, a lot of the good things uh, that that uh, that brought you that brought you here. Okay, so that's uh, migrash again. Uh, the idea of keeping cities relatively small. Uh, now that now there is of course another concept of environment. Yeah. Jerusalem is so huge. Yeah. Well, it is it is a problem. Uh, you know, for example, why do we have so many? Uh, why is traffic so bad here? Traffic is, is as bad here as, as Manhattan. Yeah. The reason is because this was supposed to be a small town. And the roads were built for small towns. The roads was not built for the amount of cars that people have. And that's what happens. Uh, when you have a community that was intended to be small, and then more and more and more people move in, and more and more cars come in, you choke your environment. Yeah. And it becomes uh, unlivable. Yeah, it's very, How very is true. That allowed? Is that why there's neighborhoods? Is that why there's like Well, well, so, so Yerushalayim at least has na- neighborhoods, right? So there's kind of a neighborhood identity. So instead of saying I'm from Yerushalayim, you say I'm from Machlaot, right? The neighborhood becomes almost a stronger focal yeah. identity mm-hmm. uh, than the city, huh? uh, than the city That's itself. Right. But yeah, it's 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 very. I mean, I mean, in some ways, the the Maybe urban the old city, huh? Uh, old city, it's packed. Well, you know, I mean, this happens over and over again. In the, in the United States, if you're familiar with Lakewood, Lakewood was a very, like, rural, bucolic area. And now it's like, you know, it's like Manhattan. I mean, the traffic there is awful. To go two miles may take, uh, may take an hour and a half. Yeah. Just to drive two miles. You could walk, you could walk it faster yeah. in a lot, of, uh, a lot of situations. It's like Jerusalem. A lot of places, a lot of times in Jerusalem, you could get to a place faster walking than even, so even by a camp. Why do you still move into, like, the old city? Well, you know, if people, if you pay enough money, <laughs> you'll, you'll get a place in the old city. That's so sad. Yeah, but that, that's, that's, that's what it is. Okay. Now, uh, there's another aspect of environmental protection to keep in mind, and that are the laws of Sakana. Now, we did discuss this. This is a different aspect. The Torah prohibits putting your life in danger. Uh, the Torah prohibits putting somebody else's life in danger. Where do we see this? Like, where, where does the Torah state... I'm not supposed to engage in dangerous behavior. We see this in a mitzvah that is called ma'akeh. Ma'akeh is if you have a flat roof that people could walk on, you must build a fence around the flat roof so that people who are on the roof are not going to fall over. So this is a raisa of ma'akeh of not creating dangers or obstacles for yourself or for other people. Now, this applies to a lot of things, and I think we discussed a few weeks ago. Uh, some opinions say you're not allowed to smoke because smoking is considered to be engaging in danger- dangerous 
behavior. Uh, anything? Huh? They can also anything? Yeah, well, tobacco, tobacco. I mean, you talk about drugs and marijuana. <laughs> Not allowed to smoke meat. No, I, I, I didn't mean to smoke meat. I mean, you're not allowed to no, smoke not. a cigarette. Yeah, because tobacco causes uh, cancer. Uh, but, he, but here the big problem is this. Obviously, a lot of times. There are opinions to say well, that. Yeah. Like, there are opinions. Not everybody. Not everybody. Like, yeah, not everybody. No, not everybody. It's like danger you because you can get like lung cancer. Yeah, lung cancer. That's what I'm saying. So, kind of. Okay, so that's the question. So, the question becomes this. The question becomes. And we, we discussed this, but I'll, I'll repeat it for a moment. What does it mean you can't do something that's dangerous? Everything is dangerous. Yeah, walking, outside. walking outside is dangerous. Driving is dangerous. Going on a bus is dangerous, yeah. for sure. Uh, certainly the food that people eat uh, it can be dangerous, at least in the long run. Uh, high fat or cholesterol, whatever it will be. Everything is dangerous. So what are you going to say? Uh, are you going to tell me there's a halacha that says I'm not allowed to do anything that is dangerous? So the short answer, which is you know, not 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 really such a clear answer, is you're you're not allowed to do something that is excessively dangerous, unreasonably dangerous, but things that are accepted by uh, society as normal types of activities. This is a very interesting aspect. Halakha is looking to say, if society accepts this as a normal activity, then you are allowed to engage in it because Hashem, you, you can assume Hashem will protect you. And this is called a pasuk in Tehillim that says, Shomer Pesoyim Hashem. Hashem protects foolish people. Now, part of the issue of smoking was that at a time when the dangers were not widely known, even if you were aware of them, some said smoking was considered to be a normal, average activity, and therefore halacha would permit you to do it, just like halacha could say you can drive even though it's a dangerous, etc. But once the, the risks are so known, and smoking is considered to be, you know, most people would say this is a dangerous thing that you shouldn't do. So some postkim have said the halakha changes now. And smoking could have been permitted 30 years ago or 40 years ago. It could not be permitted today. Others do permit it. I don't want to say, obviously, obviously you'll see great rabbis smoking. So I'm not going to say it is usher, but it is considered to be a questionable practice. But Baruch Hashem, smoking has gone down uh, in the, I mean, Hasidim in particular, were always very, very heavy smokers. Uh, always very, very heavy smokers. And uh, Baruch Hashem, there's less of it than there was. Uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the smoking was much heavier. So in that sense, people uh, have been a little more conscious of it and, and the like. Now, in looking at Sakana, though, here's the interesting question. Do you look at absolute risk or magnitude of risk? I'm going to give you an example. I, th I think I may have talked about this, but I'm, I'm going to give you an example about this. Let's say that you're a farmer and uh, you have a problem with insects. You know, insects are eating up your crop. So you want to use a pesticide to kill the insects. 
Now, many pesticides have health risks, right? The residue goes into the vegetable or the fruit, and it could create cancer risks. So let's imagine you have the following numbers. The use of this pesticide will increase the risk of lung cancer by a thousand percent. That means to say that without the pesticide, a certain percentage will get lung cancer, and with the pesticide, will be increased by a thousand percent. That means 10 times. A thousand percent means 10 times. It's 10 times more likely that people will get lung cancer. So if we would ask halakhically, am I allowed to do something that increases the risk of a fatal illness 10 times? That sounds pretty bad. A thousand percent, especially when you say a thousand percent. See, it's interesting. Semantically, different words have a different sound. If I say it increases something by a thousand percent, that sounds really, really awful. If I say it increases it 10 times, that sounds bad, but it doesn't sound as bad as a thousand percent. But numbers are the same. 10 times is the same thing as a thousand percent. You understand that, right? Because a hundred percent is double, a thousand percent is 10 times. Now, let's imagine, I'm, I'm, making, I'm totally making up numbers. I'm just making up numbers just for, for illustration. Let's imagine without, without the pesticide, one in a million people get lung cancer. I know it's higher, but I'm just giving an example. Without the pesticide, one in a million people will get lung cancer. So with the pesticide, it'll be one in 100,000 people. So a person could ask the rabbi Ashila in two different ways and, and, and see how your gut reaction is going to change. Am I allowed to do something that has a one in a hundred thousand chance of somebody getting sick? Well, that doesn't sound so bad. One in a hundred thousand chance. That's kind of a small risk. Yeah, go ahead. If, however, I ask the Shaila, am I allowed to do something that increases the risk by a thousand percent? That sounds really bad. In other words, you see what I'm saying? When you define an activity as very dangerous, are you looking at the absolute number or are you looking at the increase in the magnitude of the risk? The absolute number isn't so bad, one in a hundred thousand. But the increase in the risk is very high, a thousand percent. That's part of the issue with cigarettes, by the way. If you smoke, if you're a regular smoker at least, the increase in your risk of emphysema and lung cancer is very, very high. Let's say it's 10 times more, 20 times more, 50 times more than a non-smoker. But interestingly enough, it's still a relatively small. Most smokers do not get lung cancer. Uh, it's true, most do not, most do not. It's still the case that most do not. So it greatly, greatly increases the risk over a non-smoker. It's, it's the same type of shyla. So, so some of those who moderate smoking, they made a few arguments. 
The original argument to matter smoking was if the dangers weren't widely known, Hashem protects the foolish. Okay, that, that's not a good argument anymore. The second argument that was made about smoking was that smoking damages you cumulatively, but any individual cigarette is not sakana. So you can't say, don't smoke this one because it's dangerous. This one is not dangerous. So they were looking at it like a one by one by one. Yeah, if you keep on doing it, it'll be dangerous, but one at a time is not. That was the second argument. The third argument, and you have to look at the statistics, was that although smoking increases the risk, in absolute terms, the risk was still relatively small, like my pesticide example. Right, those were the three arguments that the mater smokers, the permitters, allowed. But as I say, many opinions do say smoking is forbidden today, unless on Purim or something, you know, assuming you're not going to get addicted to it. Some kids like to smoke on Purim. It's not, it's not a good thing, but you know, to say that they can't take a cigarette on Purim, you, know, you can't say that's Austria. One cigarette will not hurt them. But of course, huh? No, not on Purim, but 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 then that would be the occasion. I mean, you know, the occasion that a kid wants to smoke is on Purim. But once again, these things are addicted. Nicotine is uh, addictive, and uh, you know, just to start smoking, say I smoke one. I mean, if if a kid could tell me he's he's going to smoke one cigarette a year, I would say okay, you know, go ahead and do it. But that's not the way it works. It's a it's a habit, uh, like alcohol. And, and everything else, like drugs, so you can't really uh, limit it uh, that way. In fact, all the, all the gadolim say, even the gadolim that don't asser smoking, uh, they say it's much, much, much better not to start. Everybody says that. There's a unanimous opinion that don't start on it, but you know, once you're kind of caught, we can't automatically say it's asser. That's the machlokas about, uh, about, uh, about that. Uh, now, to make things more complicated, though, let me, I'll, let, me, let me go back to my pesticide problem to show you the problem here. So again, I'm making up numbers. Let's assume the following scenario. Let's assume that without the pesticides, one in a million people would get lung cancer. Uh, with the pesticide, I increase the risk by 1,000%, 10 times, which means one in 100,000. So I'm increasing the risk to the population 10 times, 10 times, very high increase. But let's also assume that with the pesticide, I could feed 100,000 more people than I otherwise would without the pesticide where the insects would eat up the crops. So here, you're gonna be killing people, let's assume, either way you go, meaning, let's say it's Africa. My people will die of starvation if you don't have the food. So here's the question. With the pesticide, 100,000 people will live who will otherwise die. But some people will die who otherwise would live. You see, it's not so push it to say, can't do it because you're endangering lives. Because sometimes you might be saving more lives by the danger than you would be risking. Uh, you, see, you see the understanding here. Because, okay, in, in affluent countries, it may not make a big difference, but in, in places like Africa and in places with starvation conditions, the ability to increase your crop yield may make the difference between people who will live and people who will die. 
So the justification of pesticides that carry risks was that, yeah, it may mean that some people are going to get sick and some people are going to die, but it also means that some people who would die of starvation are not going to die. Well, is this a numbers game? In other words, what, what, what would halacha say here? Are we looking at, well, will more people not die of starvation than will die of lung cancer? Is that the cheshman that we make? Mm-hmm. What about the general philosophy? That in Judaism, you never say, you know, one life is more important than another life. Right? We say that all lives are infinite. Right? The goyim come to the city, and the goyim say, give us a Jew or we'll wipe out the whole city. We have to be willing to have the whole city wiped out because who says our blood, even the blood of a thousand people, a million people, is better than his blood? So how does that, I'm, I'm throwing out questions for you to think about. Uh, I also I don't have a definitive answer. How does that work? In other words, the point I'm making is this. It's simple enough to say that the Torah says don't do dangerous things. When you have to apply this halachic principle in the real world, it's a very complicated question. I think the pesticide hypothetical is a very instructive hypothetical. Number one, you're increasing the percentage of risk, but the risk is still small in the numbers I gave it. And number two, the risk may be saving a lot of lives by increasing the crop. So on balance, maybe not to use the pesticide is called dangerous. Right? Which one is the dangerous thing that you're not supposed to do? Yeah. I have a slight issue with the hypothetical, which is all hypothetical, so whatever. Um, We already produce enough food in the world for everybody to not starve. It's just that it's there's so much food waste that that's what makes it so that so many people do starve. So in that case, it's like, why should we even be discussing, oh, you using, because yeah, maybe that means that you could produce more food, but the issue isn't actually that there's not enough food. The yep. real issue is that the food isn't being distributed yep. properly. So yep. then why even have the discussion about the about possibly putting other people's lives in risk when in yep. the end it isn't necessary because there's a bigger problem. That you know, that, that actually is a very, very excellent point and, it, and it's a very, very true point. Uh, sometimes people paint a picture that uh, the world is on the verge of starvation unless we find different ways of increasing crop yields, which may require pesticides and chemicals and things that cause dangers. And then we get into very complicated discussions. Are we allowed to create dangers if that's going to increase the crop? Uh, but your point is very well taken. And that is, in point of fact, if you, took it, if you looked at all the food in the world, all the crops in the world already, without any, of the, without any type of chemical thing, there is enough to feed the world. And the problem is uh, politics, the problem is corruption, the problem is uh, profiteering, uh, the problem is um, a certain amount of terrorism, even in terms of government terrorism, sometimes taking the food. Uh, 100% correct. I mean, uh, in, in, in famine areas where the United States and even Israel you know, tries to send food, you will often find that things get hijacked or held up for bribery or whatever it is. So that, that is a very excellent point. I mean, my, my, my hypothetical is a hypothetical, uh, but you are correct. But of course, in order to achieve your vision, that would require a certain amount of sacrifice on, on, the, on the affluent nation's part. For example, we might have to eat less meat because um, the amount of grain that goes to producing meat 
Uh, if we ate less meat, there'd be more grain for foreign aid and the like. So that's also an issue, meaning to say sometimes the affluent uh, people, including myself, are not always willing to make the, the, the relatively small sacrifices that would allow it. But, but you are correct. This issue of distribution is a major, major issue in, in food, and it's something that um, one I should work on. To, my family used to be in a very large farm community, and actually yeah. a lot of people use pesticides because they lost the skill of how the farm would help them. Uh-huh. So the, the only way that they can grow crop that doesn't fail is by using pesticides. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. There, there are talents that, uh, that get atrophied in time, and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's very, very true. Uh, but again, you know, there's pesticides with less risk, pesticides with more risk. I mean, there are pesticides that are banned because the risks mm -hmm. are, 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 are so high, and I hope that uh, they use, uh, you know, I hope that they're managed to, managed to use uh, safe pesticides. But uh, the issue of not knowing how to farm uh, without, without the use of these augmentations, that's a general problem of modern life. A lot of skills literally disappear. You know, it's interesting, you know, I, I used to live in Maryland, and Annapolis, Maryland has the Naval Academy, the United States Naval Academy, which is a very old academy. It actually is, er, er, it was in British times, it actually is older than the United States, the Naval Academy at Annapolis. And for, for 200 years, a required course in Annapolis was celestial navigation. Celestial navigation means you look at the stars and you know where to go. Around 20 years ago, they cut it out because they have computers. We don't need to teach uh, celestial navigation anymore. What's going to happen when the computer conks out and you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? You know, you, who knows? Uh, so nobody knows celestial navigation. I mean, I never know, but no one knows celestial navigation. By the way, the Rebbe, by the way, knew celestial navigation. He once... Uh, I think there was a story that one of his drivers once got lost, and like the Rebbe told him which direction to go by looking at the stars. <laughs> so, so that's something, you know. Uh, but this is a forgotten talent. Or even like um, uh, repairing typewriters. You ever, I, don't know if you, I don't know if any of you even saw a typewriter, but you ever see an old-fashioned typewriter that's not connected, had a ribbon? So uh, there are some people who still, like old-timers, they, 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 they'll only use a typewriter. They love the typewriter. And, so, and sometimes you've got to get it fixed, the ribbon tears or whatever it is. You can't find it. I think in New York City, like there's one like 90-year-old guy who repairs typewriters. And when he dies, you know, there'll be no typewriter repairman in New York. Or the apartment buildings, even 770, has this old-fashioned stone masonry. They don't do that fancy stuff anymore, like stone carvings and, and, and the like. So again, like there's an old like guy, Italian guy that, that knows how to do that, and nobody's trained anymore. So a whole bunch of talents literally are on the verge of dying because we don't school bother. Handwriting, listen, did, did you learn handwriting in school? Maybe you still did. Did yeah. you learn cursive handwriting? Okay, yeah. but some schools don't teach it anymore because they just, you know, everyone has, everyone has a calculator. You don't have to know the multiplication table. And everybody has a, a, a laptop. So some public schools are not teaching cursive handwriting, and they're not teaching multiplication tables. So why do I have to know that what nine times nine is? It's, you know, it's, I, have a, I have a calculator. It'll, it'll give me the answer. So uh, the point that in farming, certain techniques are simply forgotten. You know, we always look down. This is something, thing, you know, people, we look down at the ancient world including the Mishnah, the Gemara, primitive, didn't know what they were doing. 
they, they knew a lot of things besides Torah, Torah of course, but even in terms of agriculture, land, connecting to the environment, they knew a lot of things that we don't know today, that we just forgot, atrophied. And uh, there's a lot you can learn from uh, the old-fashioned uh, old ways. Alrighty, so I wish you all, uh, again, I have more to talk about this, but we'll continue next week. wish you all a happy Tuvishvat, and uh, may you be Mzocha to discover the potential of your tree uh, on that day. Thank you.